Welcome to Impact Unicorns, the podcast where you meet inspirational entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative companies. And now, here is your host, Dr. Indranil Ghosh, award-winning author, investor, and advisor to global leaders. Over the last few weeks, I've introduced to you some of the most transformative companies I know that are well-positioned to become impact unicorns, and there are more of these discussions to come. Now, many listeners have requested that from time to time, we take a step back from interviewing individual companies to talking about the bigger picture. And so in this episode, we take one of those opportunities to take a helicopter view of how sustainable investing will unfold. And in particular, I talk about the capital deployment to the ESG movement and how much of it is actually going into high impact opportunities like the impact unicorns that we profile on this podcast. The presentation that I will share with you today was first delivered as a keynote to the Global Chamber a non-profit organization trying to promote global sustainable development. It's with great pleasure that I introduce Dr. Indranil Ghosh. I've had the opportunity to work with him over the last three months, publicizing his expertise to the major business media, and I'm sure you're going to learn a lot today from his presentation. Indranil is um, based between London and New York, um, and um, he is the CEO of Sustainable Investing, um, with the firm Tiger Hill Capital. He's an award-winning author and a strategic advisor to global leaders. Just recently in August, he launched his own podcast, Impact Unicorns, where you meet inspirational entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative impact companies. He's also an MIT-trained scientist, and he partners with visionary leaders to build social impact businesses and sustainable investing platforms. So um, without further ado, uh, Indranel, why don't you share your screen and um, we're eager to hear your presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. I'll share some slides in a moment, but uh, really delighted to be speaking with you today. And the topic is going to be the global sustainable investing opportunity and how we can channel um, the capital that's going into this investment theme in, in a way that generates the most positive impact in the world. Um, but let me start by asking the question, why do we need sustainable investing to begin with? Um, well, let's hark back to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. These Sustainable Development Goals, uh, in a way, you can think of them as a, as a, as a proxy for uh, how to achieve human uh, prosperity in the future. And they tend to focus in two broad areas. The first one is around environmental sustainability uh, and how to avert climate change. And the second um, theme they pick up on is social inclusion, how to raise the living standards of uh, people in emerging market economies, as well as lower income regions of developed economies. Now, the UN has estimated that in order to achieve these sustainable development goals, the capital investment that will be required is on the order of five to seven trillion dollars per year for at least the next 10 years, if not longer, maybe two decades. Now, to put that in perspective, the global GDP of the world um, is only $80 trillion, 
which means that the capital, I mean, the tax base, sorry, the, the global tax base is around 20 trillion. So if we were to try to fund this additional investment requirement purely from taxes, we'd have to raise taxes by, by at least 25% globally across the board. Now, since raising taxes by 1% often leads to a political meltdown, a 25% increase is, is quite unfeasible. Now, of course, we can spend some of the top tax dollars that we raise or the tax money that we raise uh, more effectively, redirect it to more sustainable development investments. Um, and perhaps we can raise taxes a little bit. But the truth is that we can never escape the fact that we need to co-opt private capital. Um, and <clears throat> if we think about how much private capital is out there, well, some of that investment can come from corporations who might invest some of their surplus uh, into sustainable investments. So for example, an oil company might begin to invest its surplus into wind and solar farms to gradually make themselves into a renewable energy uh, company. But even with that, there's a shortfall, a quite significant shortfall. And so we need to mobilize private wealth, which stands at about $130 trillion in the world already deployed in investable assets. If we can shift a small portion of that to uh, infrastructure and services to uh, avert climate change and, and raise uh, social living standards and the quality of life, I think we'd make a big dent in uh, the capital required to achieve future prosperity. So let's turn our attention to what sustainable investing is um, and how much uh, capital is deployed against it at the moment globally. So I'll move to uh, the, my first slide. Hopefully you can see it. And here I've simply recorded um, some survey resu uh, results from the Global Sustainable Investment Review that estimated how much capital has flowed into different sustainable investing strategies globally to date. And you see that there are three types of strategies that they looked at, uh, ESG strategies, uh, sustainability-themed investing, and what I've called impact unicorns. Now, ESG uh, investment strategies uh, are really mostly 95 or even 99% um, investments in public stocks, public equities, which either an approach which excludes um, or stocks that are involved in tobacco or guns or uh, increasingly invo involved in uh, hydrocarbon assets. Um, and there are also uh, investment strategies that involve taking ESG factors like gender equality or carbon footprint into account when selecting stocks. Now, the vast majority of the global uh, capital deployed in ESG investing is in some form of ESG um, strategy. And <clears throat> it's growing relatively fast, about 10% a year. Now, ESG is really about applying environmental, social, and governance standards to existing businesses because you're investing in large companies that are listed already on stock exchange for the most part. Um, and so it's about improving the contribution of these companies, these existing companies, towards the UN SDGs by having a cleaner and more inclusive um, business practices. Um, <clears throat> Now, the problem with this type of sustainable investing at the moment is that there are no clear standards for how ESG is measured. There are different ratings associated bodies that you know, use different sets of metrics, and there are no mandated um, disclosure and reporting requirements 
to investors of, of what kind of ESG measures have actually been taken by a company. So until those standards are much more improved, uh, it's hard to see how much impact ESG investing is really happening. And of course, it's subject to the rightful cr criticism of, of greenwashing. A second type of sustainable investing I call sustainability-themed investing. Uh, now, this is a rapidly growing sector. There's, uh, there's 2 trillion already in this sector, but it's growing at 60% a year. This is more investment in private companies or IPOs. So younger companies that are, have a more direct um, sustainability-oriented approach. So they might be trying to solve some sort of sustainability problem by building infrastructure or decarbonizing an industry. Um, the kind of products that these, this capital goes into are climate funds, community development funds, green bonds. So most of the time there's a tangible impact associated with them. But many of these companies also require public support because the technologies need some private subsidization uh, or public subsidization in order to make them cost competitive. But over time, just like solar, we expect many of these businesses to be cost competitive in their own right as the cost of production decreases. At the top, there's a smaller, uh, much smaller set of uh, companies, which I'm calling impact unicorns, where maybe only 200 um, billion at most have been invested in these companies. And that's growing at a more modest pace of, of 20%. But these are some of the companies which I think probably deserve the greatest attention because they're already financially profitable without any public support. They're usually disrupting an industry and could have huge economic and um, social and environmental impact. Um, an example of this would be vertical farming, which is growing food in controlled environments 365 days a year, 24 seven, um, in the optimal conditions of heat, light and temperature. So you can get a much higher yield. Um, and if you do this in a very large scale, um, in large indoor growing facilities, you can actually produce food much lower cost than you do with conventional agriculture. And if you power it through renewable energy, um, you can actually generate revenues from the surplus energy that's not used by the vertical farm. Um, and you turn some of the costs into revenue streams. So there are many other examples of these types of disruptive companies out there that are reinventing industry after an industry but the amount of capital that they're getting is relatively little and it's not growing as fast. So if you look at uh, this pyramid, in many ways, it should be inverted. More capital going towards these disruptive companies at the top, more companies to sustain, more, more capital to sustainability themed investing. And until there are better standards, perhaps a lot less into ESG. Unfortunately, the vehicles by which we could allow investors to um, invest in the, the top two parts of the triangle are today limited. And so the path of least resistance is often to go into ESG funds. And this is the problem of in, in sustainable investing in a nutshell. We need to find new ways to allow capital to flow to the top of the pyramid um, and generate more impact. From a global standpoint, the other thing to notice here, of course, is the vast, vast majority of this capital that's represented here um, is, is coming uh, through into investments in, in North America and Europe uh, with China and Latin America uh, following behind that. So of course, a lot more of this capital needs to go to some of the emerging markets. 
Now, let me also step back again now and, and ask the question, if we're going to affect this pyramid, maybe change the shape of it and make sure that um, uh, this capital has the maximum possible impact, don't we need to also ensure that there's some sort of broader system change going so that regulation and um, social attitudes support the new types of businesses that this capital could be supporting? Um, well, of course, the answer to that is yes. And so what I want to talk about for a few minutes is where are we with global system change, um, which needs to be in place for sustainable investing to actually work and the two need to work together. If you're enjoying Impact Unicorns, don't forget to like, subscribe and hit the bell to receive notifications of new shows to bring the most relevant impact venture stories to the podcast. If you would like to review the show, go to the Apple Podcasts mobile app or iTunes to leave a rating and review. Well, of course, many of you are aware of um, the IPCC's recent report on climate change declaring a code red for humanity and just reaffirming what we already knew that we have a very short amount of time maybe a decade to significantly reduce by at least 50 percent the, the amount of carbon dioxide or greenhouse gas emissions in the world to uh, really avert some some dangerous levels maybe catastrophic levels of climate change um, and indeed this chart shows that uh, extreme weather events are becoming much more frequent. It, it is a fact. And the loss uh, and, and devastation to property and infrastructure is mounting. This, of course, has made climate change much more palpable to many people and raised it up the agenda in recent years through a, a variety of, of different protests and ultimately legislation. A second big set of issues in the system are around inequality and access to resources. Um, here I show a chart of how in the US, um, the real cost of many things, which you would consider basics of living, like so housing, healthcare, education, and food have risen significantly in real terms, while material things like clothing, furnishings, cars, and electronics have come down in price. So, in many ways, the way I think about it is that stuff got a lot cheaper. To buying stuff is cheaper, but life things are much more expensive. And particularly if you're in lower income um, parts of the world or regions, look communities, um, the fact that housing, healthcare, and food and education got much more expensive is really limiting the access that you have to the resources that you need to be as productive member of society as your talents will allow. It's really blocking out a large part of the human population uh, from, you know, from, from individual prosperity. And of course, denting our ability for collective prosperity at the same time. Now, we see a very similar story uh, of, as presented by this chart in, in the emerging world as well. So many cities like Shanghai, Mumbai, Sao Paulo, many other cities have experience the same uh, effect where uh, they become very densely populated in a very short period of time, raising rents and costs of healthcare and education. Um, and um, this is, you know, crowding people out in the same way. It's compounded by the fact that food and fuel prices actually have also risen very steeply in real terms in emerging markets, which is less of a feature in developed countries, but is an additional problem 
in emerging countries. Now, at the same time, this chart shows how the share of corporate profits uh, or, or the amount of uh, money going into wages and labor relative to corporate profits has also become skewed. So this shows data for the US indexed to 100 uh, in the 1950s and shows that in particular, in the last uh, 20 or 30 years, the amount of um, uh, in increases in, in wages has been outstripped by the amount of, of surplus going to corporate profits. And so this means that um, shareholders of corporations and senior executives have gotten richer, while relatively speaking, workers have gotten, you know, have done less well. So you combine the fact that the working population is, is earning less in relative terms, um, while the wealthy asset owners and shareholders are getting wealthier. You combine that with the fact that basic life expenses got a lot more uh, expensive over the uh, sorry expensive over the last 20 or 30 years and you see why there's an access problem and why inequality has become a big issue and similar data trends can be seen in other emerging countries like turkey and china and india so this isn't just a u.s phenomenon it's much more of a, a global phenomenon so this just underlines the extent of the issues we have in the system averting catastrophic or potentially catastrophic climate change and reversing some of these uh, inequality gaps and access issues that have sprung up across the world. Now, it's not surprising that these problems have, have not gone unnoticed by the general public. And we've seen a, a real climb in, in the amount of global unrest um, across the world. And you can see that over this 20 year period, from this 10 year period from this chart from The Economist, protests have really uh, ratcheted up in the last five years. And it's protests against uh, environmental issues as well as it is against uh, social inequity. So when I think about what's required for system change to occur, in my analysis, what I've found is it requires a convergence between changing social attitudes um, reflected in policies and institutions and enabled by technology and innovation. So it seems as though perhaps some of the um, conditions that are required for system change are converging. The protests began to show you that there is a real change happening in social attitudes, also helped by an intergenerational um, uh, change in attitudes as well. Um, and this has only been exacerbated by COVID in many cases where we've gotten used to, you know, different things like working remotely. Um, COVID has even uh, magnified some of the, the problems that we've seen in social inequality. So our attitudes towards you know, making the changes, I think have only uh, been amplified. We've seen changes in policy in terms of uh, the European Green Deal, the Biden administration plan, the China 2060 uh, net zero uh, policies that are showing that policy is now beginning to catch up with, with social um, attitudes to um, legislate or set targets and begin to legislate changes to the way the system operates to encourage more sustainable and more inclusive uh, society. And look, technology has actually never been the problem. We have plenty of technology, but now um, that technology has greater chance of being deployed into positive 
business models and, and, and um, business applications. I mean, for example, we've had uh, remote conferencing capabilities for many years. It was only after COVID um, that we were forced to use them and we found actually, this actually works quite well. And social attitudes and employer attitudes have changed. And I think we will see a system change in that very small, simple example. But the, I think the same is going to be true played out in many different industries in many different walks of life. So I think we do have this window of opportunity for system change to happen. And typically, you know, we're not a very proactive species. We're a reactive species. Uh, system change needs to be catalyzed by a crisis. You know, if you think about previous system changes, um, the Great Depression or the civil, US Civil War was followed by the Reconstruction, the Great Depression by the New Deal, and so on. We need to be jolted into action. And maybe the, the silver lining of this, of this COVID mess is that it is in fact the fourth worst crisis that the world has faced since 1850. If you just look at uh, GDP impact or impact on GDP growth, it was quite a severe crisis, much, much bigger than um, the global financial crisis of 2009 uh, to, to 11. And the other thing that was interesting is that COVID has been a global crisis. Many more countries have been affected than many of the previous crises, as you see from the chart on the right. So everyone was jolted into you know, seeing things from a different perspective. And I think now the world is experimenting with, with some of the system change that we need. So when we come back now to sustainability-themed investments. What kind of investments can we be making you know, in this um, more receptive um, social and political climate for change to help make a big dent in some of the sustainable issues that we have? Well, I've listed some of the big themes uh, that I'm uh, involved in and I think make a big difference. So there are things like renewable energy and clean fuels, being able to also you know, manage the electrical grid more smartly and have distributed energy, be able to uh, manage the uh, intermittency of energy in the grid that you get when you have solar and wind as a much larger proportion of, of the energy feeding the, the grid. Um, the, the, the need to decarbonize many industrial sectors like fertilizers, steel, and making batteries which have their own negative carbon footprint, although they can have a positive impact overall. Um, clean mobility, whether it's electric vehicles or vehicles powered by hydrogen. Um, well, there's a lot we need to do in food, water, and waste management, like vertical farming, like regenerative farming, um, water efficiency. And of course, there's a whole series of um, social inclusion investment themes, like financial inclusion, digital connectivity, digital health, and education. And I think... Um, these investment themes are to a large extent globally relevant, um, but perhaps for the emerging economies, it's also a unique opportunity to leapfrog um, in areas like wireless connectivity in distributed energy before um, there's a need to even put down some of this very 20th large scale expensive 20th century infrastructure like centralized power systems, um, centralized um, telecommunication systems with lots of wires running everywhere. There's opportunities to leapfrog all of that, to leapfrog into the digital world with more efficient e-government, e-health, 
um, digitization of the monetary system. But there's also opportunities, I think, with the, many of the, the natural resources that uh, um, emerging markets often have to produce a whole new range of uh, natural materials from forestry, from agri-waste, which have much higher value add, things like cross-laminated timber, which you can use as a very sturdy construction material um, that can create whole sets of new manufacturing industries in emerging markets and, and diversify and, and increase the value of those economies. So the kind of investments I think that, um, you know, some of this sustainable 35 trillion of ESG sustainable capital is going into should be much more directly you know, feeding into these types of infrastructure and industrial opportunities. Over the past 20 years, I've worked with hundreds of entrepreneurs to build impact unicorns. In my experience, every company that has a transformative positive effect on the world does so by building strong partnerships with communities, investors and governments to solve society's biggest challenges. If you'd like to learn more about how innovative entrepreneurs can help to build a more sustainable and inclusive future, read my award-winning book, Powering Prosperity, A Citizen's Guide to Shaping the 21st Century. So let me conclude by just thinking about emerging markets in particular and putting a, a bit more of a lens and spotlight on that. Um, a lot of what I've said, I think, as I said, is global. Um, but specifically, the challenge in a lot of emerging markets is where to find enough capital um, to invest in some of the themes that I just mentioned. Um, I think, first of all, the capital that there is needs to focus much more on the top two parts of that triangle that I showed you, on the impact unicorns, the disruptive companies, as well as the, the bigger you know, uh, sustainability-themed investments as well. Perhaps less, at least in the short term, in publicly listed existing businesses which are claiming to be ESG because right now we just don't know whether they're or how much impact that they're really having. But more importantly, I think it's important for emerging markets to think about how to take control of the funding for economic development. In this post-COVID world, it's unlikely that there's going to be a lot of foreign support, whether it's in form of aid or FDI to spur a lot of the investment that's required. So emerging markets need to think about how to increase the pools of capital, their own pools of capital that are available and able to sort of circulate uh, into these different uh, investment areas. And one way of doing that would be to digitize the monetary system, which countries like India are beginning to do, where by having a digital identification certificate and linking it to tax collection, maybe in the future to pensions and insurance, there's gonna be an increase in the tax base and pools of capital created in pension and insurance schemes, which can then be later invested to deepen the capital markets in stock markets, bonds, and you know, other, other things. Um, some countries, again, like India and Nigeria have created sovereign development funds where they take um, public funds and put them into investment vehicles and find co-investors from other nations who are willing to invest in the projects that these funds seed and can develop in their own countries. So you can think of these funds as often being seed investors in important sustainable infrastructure and service projects, which when these funds de-risk those, those companies and those projects, it's much easier for foreign capital to come in behind. 
Um, in many countries, you find that a large part of the economy is also driven by uh, remittances from diaspora. Now, if some of this funding could be more easily channeled into investment platforms that are more dedicated to impact unicorns and sustainability-themed investments, I think we could find a way for expatriated Indians, for, for myself, for example, to invest back in our home countries or countries of origin. Um, and of course, in countries like um, China, for example, there's a growth in crowdfunding and peer-to-peer -peer lending and insurance, which is really people lending to each other as a way of um, unblocking investments in small businesses and, and, and useful projects. So there are a whole series of measures, I believe, which can be taken to really help uh, emerging markets or emerging markets help themselves to accelerate sustainable development movement in their, in their local economies. I think a lot of ongoing research is required. Um, I'm very active in some of these areas. As Susan mentioned, I've written a book called Powering Prosperity, which talks about some of the requirements uh, which we alluded to today, uh, some of them in, in order to build a more prosperous future. There's a lot of research going on in places like the International Forum of Sovereign Wealth Funds and places like the NYU in Abu Dhabi, which has set up an invest, uh, an inve impact investment or transition investing lab to research what kind of measures need to be taken in sustainable investing, particularly for emerging markets. And I hope to be able to report some of the findings from, from that research effort in, in future sessions here. Um, and of course, my podcast and Impact Unicorns, I'm focusing on some of the companies, um, these disruptive companies that could really um, help make a big dent uh, in, in transforming industries which are carbon intensive or helping the growth of companies in areas like education and healthcare that can create much broader access um, to lower income parts of, of, of the world. So with that, let me stop and see if there are any questions uh, on what I've said. Indranel, thank you very much. Um, I think I'm going to um, give you one question and then we may have more at the end of the session. So, um, you know, you've encouraged the emerging markets to take control of their destiny, but investment flows from developed countries are surely critical for that development. What do you think could be the consequence if the developed economies do nothing to support the emerging markets to make a sustainable transition? Well, I think this is, you know, a very politically fraught question, especially in a post-COVID era, when many countries are just scrambling to take their public finances and uh, support some of the reconstruction, build back better initiatives that there are out there. So how indeed can uh, developed markets help uh, the developing ones? I think the whole question becomes a whole lot easier, the more investable uh, assets are in emerging markets. So to the extent, if you take the example of some of the sovereign development funds I talked about, the Indian Infrastructure Fund, if it's able to um, develop or seed projects like large-scale renewable energy, transportation, clean transportation, to make those projects um, more real, to advance them to a point where um, many of the risks have been taken away, maybe the roads have been planned, the energy uh, plants have been you know, fully developed, it's a lot easier at that point for capital from other countries, whether other sovereign wealth funds or private sources, to come into those de-risk projects. 
the more we have digital investment platforms, whether it be crowdfunding or equity uh, or peer-to-peer lending, you know, the more there are platforms like this, the easier it is for private investors and diaspora to put their money to work in, in developing countries. So I think it's critical that developed market capital finds its way into, into these, uh, these emerging growth economies. Um, but just this environment needs to be made as in investable as possible. If, if we don't get that kind of capital transfer, however, I think uh, there will be, a, again, a gap that's created between maybe developing countries that are becoming more sustainable and emerging market countries that are being left behind. But that's ultimately bad for the world, because if that means continued carbon pollution from these emerging countries, you know, we're all affected by that. If you've enjoyed this episode of Impact Unicorns, don't forget to rate and review this show by scrolling down and clicking rate this podcast. And join me next week as I talk to more inspirational entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative companies.